Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. I'm Juan Zarate, chairman and co-founder of Fin. We're glad to have you back. In this episode, we will be talking about investment security, risk, and integrity in the COVID era. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been proven. Very happy to be joined by two of my great friends and colleagues, Tim Doss and Dave Hawley to talk about investment security, risk and integrity in the COVID era, talking about what's happening in the current environment, how we're looking at the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US and the application of the new FIRMA Act in 2018, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act. There's no two better folks to be talking about these issues uh, than him and Dave. For those of you who may not know them, Tim Doss is a senior vice president at Finn, longtime expert, one of the great uh, national and international experts on CFIUS trade and sanctions. Really happy to have him on this podcast with us. Hi, him. How are you? I'm doing great, Juan. Thanks. And it's great to be here today. And I hope everyone is doing well. Great. We also have Dave Hawley, uh, a great friend and colleague from K2 Intelligence, an executive vice president of the Americas practice, uh, one of the great investigators. Uh, in the private sector. We've worked uh, together on investigations and disputes. Uh, Dave has a, an, an ear and an eye for great business intelligence and has worked on numerous monitorships in the private sector. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I, I appreciate you having me, and it's um, great to be joining you guys today. Great. Um, for listeners, him and Dave uh, lead our CFIUS advisory service practice area. And We'll get into that a bit later, but we really do want to talk about where we stand in investment security and risk uh, in the current uh, environment. Let me set the table and then turn to him for some initial thoughts about the environment. Uh, before we had the uh, COVID crisis, we were already in a period of greater sensitivity around what foreign investment looked like, what the vetting of that investment should entail and how we even defined national security risk in that context. That's what led to the passage of the FIRMA Act in 2018. We had a broader debate emerging as well before the crisis around national economic security, how we think about trade, export controls, the use of sanctions, the defense of our innovation base as a way of protecting not just the country's national security, but also its economic system. And finally, and pretty obviously, we had a greater concentration on great power competition. This was something highlighted in the Trump administration's national security strategy, uh, dealing in particular with the rise of China and the challenges in the economic domain from the Chinese juggernaut. With that, then we had the COVID crisis and much of that was exacerbated. The tensions with China clearly uh, coming into focus and much of the scrutiny around uh, national economic security was accelerated. And in that context, we have the question of how the environment is affecting uh, the investment security and risk environment, and in particular, the application of CFIUS 
and PERMA requirements. So, him, let me put the first question to you. How is the environment changing? What's the economic landscape look like? And how do you view uh, investment risk currently? Well, Devon, um, the uh, pandemic and the environment around the pandemic has really exposed a number of different crises that are ongoing. First of all, there is a health crisis, and that health crisis around COVID-19 and the pandemic has highlighted challenges um, related to supply chains and the availability of medical devices such as ventilators uh, and medical supplies such as gowns and masks um, and vaccines as well. The health challenges have really exposed supply chain issues and supply chain considerations and the abilities of countries to be able to manufacture and produce uh, medical items necessary to respond to the pandemic, as well as to be able to access production facilities that are located in other countries or produced by manufacturers that are not located in your home country. The second crisis that the pandemic has exposed is a financial crisis more generally. And the financial crisis is a significant one. Um, the IMF has downgraded global growth for 2020 to uh, shrink uh, by 4.9% um, across the globe. And they are forecasting significant decreases in growth in the United States by uh, minus 8% and in the EU by uh, minus 10.2%. So there is likely to be a large shrinkage in global economic growth, as well as a significant decrease in global M&A activity. There are reports that uh, M&A activity has decreased uh, dramatically from $1.9 trillion in the first half of 2019 to $1.1 trillion in the first half of 2020. So against this backdrop, uh, many companies have seen their values plunge. Um, some companies are struggling to find cash. Others are going to potentially face restructuring or bankruptcy over time. And, you know, uh, the interesting point here is that as governments look to respond to the pandemic and the financial crisis, and as they infuse the economy with significant stimulus and relief funding, we have not seen significant bankruptcies at this point, but there are great concerns and significant concerns about a potential uh, devaluation of companies and struggles by companies to find cash as they can't as they can't access uh, capital and finance to be able to continue their work. There is a particular concern as well in the national security space as well, uh, uh, particularly around small startups that are engaged in innovative biotechnology, artificial intelligence, robotics, other types of uh, novel and innovative technologies that support the defense industry, as well as support of the medical industry and other industries as well and their ability to get cash. So I think that there is a, a general concern in the United States, but also around the world, around the uh, challenges uh, that are being caused by the pandemic and by the financial crisis in terms of uh, the stability and the ability of, of a number of different countries and a number of national security critical sectors to be able to uh, access capital at this critical time. That's a great summary, Him. I'm gonna. I want to come back to the question of what's happening internationally, which I think um, parallels some of, of what you're discussing. Um, but let me let me turn to Dave. Uh, in part, Dave, to to ask you how you think the private sector and institutions 
um, are dealing with the crisis currently? What are some of the risks and challenges you're seeing, maybe not even just in the CFIUS context, but more broadly uh, that may be of interest to the listener? There are a number of things that um, you know we continue to talk about internally as we sort of look after our, our clients and help guide them about what they should be concerned about. And I think you know, just generally the opportunities for fraud, both internally and in, in dealing with uh, business partners, associates, third-party vendors is heightened. Um, we're all away from, generally all away from our offices. And I, you know, opportunities arise for business email compromise, um, you know, fictitious vendors, uh, inefficient or incomplete. Uh, onboarding of, of partners or, or other um, third-party service providers. So I think this this sort of what appears to be our new reality for the short term has opened up um, avenues for people who want to do bad to do so. And, and I think, you know, while we, we focus our attention on our, you know, employees and, and, and health and keeping operations busy, um, you know, we also need to worry about those who are, uh, Jules Kroll used to say, are somewhere, someplace doing uh, no good or up to no good. So that's really, I think, the primary thing that um, we're looking at and, you know, we should all be concerned about. Absolutely. And, and we, of course, have seen all the advisories coming out from various law enforcement regulatory agencies worried about um, increased uh, cyber financial activity um, fraud, um, especially with the with the trillions of dollars that are being pumped into the system, um, and the the inability to to monitor and track and provide accountability for every last dollar. We've already seen plenty of schemes revealed uh, with respect to to defrauding uh, folks through the through the lens of the health crisis, which is even more tragic. Let me let me come back him to you and ask. Um, how you see, you know, CFIUS and uh, Firma itself unfolding and being implemented in this environment. Obviously, the M&A environment's impacted to a certain degree. Foreign direct investment may be slowed. Certainly, there's been some deterrence of certain types of capital, especially from China, given some of these restrictions. But how is implementation unfolding in the current environment? That's a great question, Juan. I think there are, are a couple of different dimensions in terms of the overall U.S. government response uh, to the financial crisis and the pandemic. Uh, one piece of it is uh, CFIUS and the implementation of FIRMA. Um, the other is um, a response that tracks the stimulus and the relief funding. And I will briefly talk about both of those. I think that the U.S. government, as well as uh, uh, Congress, have both expressed pretty significant concerns about the use of adversarial capital to erode the defense industrial base and to potentially seek to impede or impair U.S. Uh, supply chains more generally. And uh, both uh, Congress, as well as a number of U.S. government agencies, have called for the need for CFIUS to strengthen its reviews now. CFIUS was provided a number of pretty significant authorities. They're well ahead of the curve already in terms of the range of authorities uh, that are available to it. Um, you noted the passage of FIRMA in uh, 2018. 
Um, and that provided some very important tools for CFIUS to be able to address uh, some of the concerns um, arising from the pandemic. One is that um, it focused on a new set of transaction structures and non-controlling investments that uh, CFIUS can now review transactions where the investment transaction does not result in control of the un underlying U.S. business. So if there is a, a short-term cash infusion that does not result in control, but an investor takes a smaller stake, and that stake provides the investor with access to uh, information about critical technology or sensitive personal data, CFIUS can review that transaction. It's made very specific the nature of the national security concerns that it can review um, with respect to critical infrastructure, critical technology, and sensitive personal data. And it can review real estate transactions as well. The CFIUS law uh, does not specify what national security means in any particular context. So CFIUS actually has fairly broad authority uh, to uh, take stock of what the national security concerns and considerations are. And one significant expectation is that in the context of the pandemic, there will be a heightened scrutiny and review of transactions that involve uh, the medical sector, medical supplies, PPEs, um, biotechnology, vaccine technology as well. And these are not technologies in which CFIUS has traditionally reviewed uh, transactions. It would be a new area, but we can expect greater reviews in these areas. I think also we would expect that CFIUS will be looking at supply chain considerations with respect to not only the defense sector, but more broadly across the critical infrastructure uh, framework as well to ensure that um, investment transactions don't impair uh, supply chain availability for sensitive and critical sectors also. I think lastly, CFIUS from an uh, institutional perspective is taking on a number of different steps. Uh, CFIUS uh, issued new regulations to implement the FIRMA law in, at the end of February. They have now gone into effect. And the regulations heightened a, one, the ability of uh, CFIUS to be able to uh, monitor transactions um, and transactions that are not filed with CFIUS for review. Um, this monitoring effort will be will effectively allow CFIUS to bring in uh, transactions where there may be some threat to U.S. national security um, and ask for the, either the parties to file voluntarily with CFIUS so that it can review the transaction or to force the parties uh, to submit to a CFIUS review. Um, and that is a pretty significant development. CFIUS is also tailoring uh, its scope of review uh, to the export control regime as well, which in some ways provides greater guidance to the regulated community and to investors and U.S. businesses as to what uh, CFIUS is looking for in terms of its reviews, but it also heightens for companies the need to uh, assess more critically what technologies that they have and how it might be subject to controls and licensing regimes for the purposes of CFIUS reviews, not only for the purposes as to whether or not they may export a technology to a, a foreign destination. Him, that's a fantastic review, a great summary. And it really struck me in listening to you, you know, how how broad and deep uh, some of these processes and reforms are. In the first instance, the discussion, the point you made about 
national security being in some ways a fluid undefined term and it could be um, could be sort of construed in broader terms as it has been in in recent months with respect to national economic security or if you look at health security so that's a that's a really important point uh, the point about the the breadth of transactionality that can be brought under review and the, and the ability to bring in transactions under review that may not have been apparent to the parties to begin with uh, is is really important and and finally, point that you and Dave have, have stressed all along, and in particular clients, the, the proactive preventative measures that need to be taken in light of these changes, the fact that um, companies and those engaged in transactions need to be uh, much more, investment funds need to be much more conscious of uh, these, these issues uh, ab initio from the very beginning. Uh, when they're formulating deals or they're strategizing how they're going to to create their deals. So uh, just fascinating points uh, that affect the marketplace. Uh, Dave, you you have deep experience with business intelligence, investigations, preventative work with clients of all shapes and sizes around the world. Uh, You know, how do you see what, you know, what Hims described as affecting the way that you know, major corporates or investment funds uh, need to operate in this environment. How does it affect things like supply chain uh, security and integrity and, and and other things that you worry about on a daily basis? Yeah, that's a it's a really interesting question, Juan. And and him started uh, to touch on it in um, in a perfect way, actually. So having been involved in sort of international M and A since the mid nineties, it, it's it's been a very interesting evolution as to what entities involved in M&A and their advisors have been considering. It wasn't that long ago where, you know, sort of the reputational due diligence was was kind of an afterthought and an option. And now, of course, we see that in just about every deal alongside quality of earnings and other um, sort of financial due diligence. But what we're, what we're starting to see now, and, and, it's, and it varies in its depth and breadth, is an examination of uh, supply chain in the context of um, redundancy, in the context of you know national security. Our the question is uh, are important components of our of our manufacturing process or components of our actual product. Um, where are we sourcing those and how are we sourcing those? Are there implications, national security or economic security implications? Uh, in, in that, that those purchases and bolt on to that, what happens if we engage in an M&A deal? We now have to then go look at um, our, our acquisition targets, supply chain, and where those, that, that, those raw materials or those components are being sourced. So it's been an, an interesting evolution. I think it's, it's only going to be more intense and more in-depth as, as the, this administration and subsequent in, in administrations um, dig into to firma and and realize that they do have you know some powers to to prevent unfortunate national security economic security transactions or, or episodes from taking place. So I, I think the the key aspect of all this really is is preparation and going into a transaction, understanding what CFIUS is going to be looking at. And adapting your due diligence plan, um, your M and A plan to parallel 
and look for the risks that CFIUS is going to consider and identify ways in which those risks can be mitigated in advance of either a filing or engaging in a transaction. Dave, that's fascinating. And given sort of the scope of your experience and, and looking back and seeing these changes, you know, it must be fascinating. What you just think is critical, which is, you know, this forms part of a of a preventative regime that's about both awareness and mitigation. Uh, whether you're formally captured in the CFIUS uh, process or in firm, firma processes or not, um, this has to be part of the, the risk calculus of, of any, you know, uh, M&A deal or any transaction uh, that, that touches on anything of national security or national economic security import. The, the other the other thing that's fascinating about what you said in, in Revelatory, Dave, is the fact that the, the issues of transparency traceability um, that have been so much of the hallmark of the anti-money laundering sanction system or the anti-fraud regime or even the anti-bribery corruption regime, you know, you begin to see that and those tenants blending in with the CFIUS and FIRMA regime in a pretty fundamental way. Um, and him, to your point about uh, greater focus on real estate, I, I do find it's interesting that there, there is greater scrutiny around real estate deals. At the same time, there's greater scrutiny around shell company ownership of high-end real estate in the United States from FinCEN and others, and concern about money laundering risks and the kleptocratic risks tied to real estate investments. So um, I, I really, it's interesting listening to you both because you, you hear the echoes of the convergence of uh, transparency regimes and integrity regimes that form a key part of what CFIUS and PERMA are becoming. And let me let me let me ask you a question. It's intended to be provocative, uh, because this this could kind of swallow everything that the U.S. does. It is to say, you know, what are the limits? Um, what what are the limits that you currently see in the application of CFIUS and Firma? And what is what's happening in the international environment that's informing uh, what that looks like for other countries? Well, you're absolutely right. And that is a big part of the conversation now as to exactly what the scope of the dimensions of CFIUS review are and, and what national security actually uh, means. Um, I think that there is a, a fairly significant debate around uh, right now around economic security and national security. The Treasury Department and the CFIUS uh, agencies have all been quite clear uh, that the CFIUS process is one that should be focused on national security and national security in terms that are relatively narrowly tailored. Uh, CFIUS and, and the CFIUS structure and legislation in 2007 and again in FIRMA both reaffirm that uh, CFIUS is intended to uh, help enhance integrity of the overall U.S. open investment posture. Um, that is designed to attract capital into the United States to help companies grow uh, and help build businesses and create jobs here in the United States. I think that that is a essential part of the conversation when uh, when uh, national security review regimes come up. As the conversation in Congress becomes one of greater concern about predatory investments, uh, concerns about uh, supply chain integrity, uh, the concerns about Chinese investment as well, 
Um, it all it, uh, happens against the backdrop of of a conversation around how do you maintain an open investment regime? Um, because you, again, the United States wants to attract investment. That said, um, you're absolutely right to flag the issue about concerns where members of Congress, as well as members of this administration have been uh, articulating concerns about economic security and how that should be playing into evaluations of whether or not national security concerns are implicated. That is especially uh, significant as we sort of focus and, or refocus away from traditional uh, national security areas like defense, uh, export control industries, and the like, and move into more uh, or more broad aspects of the U.S. economy, like supply chain vulnerabilities, medical supply chains, or other types of supply chains that are not focused on as part of tra uh, uh, traditionally focused on as part of the defense base or uh, or export controls. Internationally, I think that what we're seeing is a trend uh, that was initially motivated by the U.S. government and by CFIUS to enhance or to ask other countries and press other countries to enhance their own foreign direct investment review regimes um, and to have national security review regimes as well. Um, and countries uh, uh, dragged their feet a little bit initially, um, but with the pandemic, what we've seen is a pretty significant uptake by countries to uh, enhance and uh, support and develop uh, their own uh, foreign investment uh, review regimes as well. In March, um, the European uh, Commission essentially published a policy guidance that exhorted all of the member states to A, implement foreign direct investment review regimes, not all of which had been implemented, and B, to focus on concerns about uh, uh, health supply chain integrity, as well as uh, with respect to predatory investments as well. And what we've seen is that a number of uh, European countries, Germany, Italy, France, and the UK, have all taken steps to uh, enhance their foreign direct investment review regimes and their investment security regimes, uh, to focus on predatory investments, uh, to focus on uh, health supply chains as well, but also to focus on other national security areas where there might be predatory investments, for example, in artificial intelligence and advanced materials in cryptography and other areas as well. Um, you're also seeing this in other countries. Canada has ramped up its focus on, on health supply chain integrity. We've seen actions in Australia as well, in Japan. Uh, and notably, India has taken action to uh, develop a, a foreign investment review regime with respect to countries with which it shares land borders. And again, this is clearly targeted as, at China as well, although it's not included uh, by name in their uh in their regime. I think what you'll see across the board um, is that uh, as countries implement their own foreign investment review regimes, there is likely to be some blurring between national security and economic security. And to the extent that, you know, uh, that countries are initially very focused on Chinese investment into their country and Chinese inward investment into their countries and are concerned about predatory investments and theft of intellectual property, uh, um, I think that, you know, one issue that is likely to be on the horizon as well is as as countries focus not only on China, they're likely to focus on other countries, for example, U.S. investments into, say, European countries, uh, perhaps in the medical supply chain area or Australian investments into Japan or vice versa. And so I think that will be an interesting thing to see. Uh, how it plays out and how uh, countries start implementing their regime against non-Chinese investment 
uh, what concerns are uh, raised, and what the overall geopolitical dynamic is around uh, the application of of these regimes across uh, the world with respect to a range of countries. Um, And that sort of brings back the point with respect to investors and companies, which is I think countries, companies have to be even more sensitive, not just to the CFIUS regime, but they have to be even more sensitive to geopolitical dynamics and how various countries, how many different countries are implementing their own CFIUS-like regimes as well. Yeah. Fascinating how the health crisis has accelerated the, the focus on investment security and risk. Um, and you've already seen what you described a bit, him, about scrutiny beyond China in the context of uh, the, the development of a vaccine and, and who's investing in it, who controls uh, the leading research uh, and who will ultimately control distribution. And so these are, these are very sensitive issues that are exacerbated by the, the current crisis and all the uncertainty. Let me turn to um, to the point that you raised and, and something I wanted to ask both you and, and Dave, which is China. Because as you said, him, these are regimes, especially in Europe and elsewhere, that aren't just focused on Chinese risk. China really has been uh, the principal target of uh, or, or risk of concern, and to put it in a, in a milder way, um, for countries. And, and you know, India has been the the most blatant about it in in terms of targeting as well as the U.S. India's ba- you know banned uh, apps that it considers national security threats like TikTok, um, and has really been much more aggressive in recent weeks with respect to Chinese investment. But I want to talk to you both about how we see this progressing with China. Uh, Dave, are there particular risks or issues that you see with clients in the U.S.-China trade corridor? With particular Chinese supply chains, or even uh, you know fraudulent cases that you've come across that implicate China more directly, and and how should the private sector be thinking about the Chinese risk in this context? Well, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking back about you know all that's transpired in the last I don't know year or two with with respect to China, and we have you know the, the Creation of Team Telecom. There were some actions by uh, Congress and the FCC and other agencies directed at Huawei and, and ZTE. Uh, the May was a May 2009 executive order on uh, communications technology and, and uh, supply chain. There, we had, of course, the enforcement action against uh, Huawei uh, in 18. Um, and certainly, there's 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 no Loss of focus on on uh, China as a as a concern, both a national security and economic concern. So you know our focus really with our, our clients is geared to helping them understand as best they can uh, when they do business in China or with China who it is they're doing business with, and you know what steps need to be taken in order to uh, mitigate the rest risks of doing that, whether it's it's helping them lock down technology, understanding who is gaining access uh, to what technology, to even helping uh, segregate important technologies from, uh, or national security, potentially national security implicated technologies from the rest of their technology, 
as well as um, you know locking down PII and other things that might that might cause you know syphilis anxiety, if you will. So those are really the sort of the, the, the primary things that that have come to the forefront most recently. You know, we are still seeing um, a, a number of frauds that that ultimately wind their way into China, um, whether it's business email compromise, which I mentioned earlier, or some of these non-arms length transactions we've seen uh, that that uh, our, our clients are experiencing within their Chinese operations, fictitious uh, vendors, fictitious employees, uh, none of which is unique to China, but at least most recently seems to be uh, more prevalent these days. So those are really the are the, the primary things that, that we're hearing and seeing the last several months. That's very helpful, Dave, because part, part of what you described is sort of intensity of the fundamentals, right? Know your client, know your customer, know your counterparty. Part of it is more sophisticated design and architectures around how business is done or deals are structured uh, to manage IP and data risk and technology risk. So really fascinating. Tim, let me let me turn to you maybe to close us out on this question of China because I think from my perspective, you know, in some ways there's we're beginning to see not just greater scrutiny with respect to China, but in some ways, kind of a, a harsh normalization of, of policy treatment, which is to say, uh, China has, has in some ways gotten away with not adhering to certain standards or practices they're now falling under greater scrutiny, in part because of what's happening in Hong Kong with the passage of the Hong Kong Security Act, which Xi Jinping signed on June 30th. Um, the you know human rights uh, violations of the Uyghurs uh, with some atrocious allegations in recent days of you know demographic genocide, but more broadly on Chinese business practices, in particular, you know, um, on the Hill and in the administration, the the greater scrutiny with respect to Chinese listed companies and whether or not they're providing the audited financials that are required by the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board um, and, and whether or not Chinese companies that aren't willing to provide that kind of data or independent audits uh, can even be listed in the U.S. Um, so talk, talk to me and let's close out the discussion with how uh, the China risk plays out in the CFIUS and Firma context and, and what you see next uh, with the U.S.-China uh, relationship. So that is a, a conversation that could go on for yeah, hours. Maybe that's, maybe that's our next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. You know, there are a number of different dimensions. Um, uh, just more narrowly with respect to CFIUS, I think that both you and Dave have alluded to sort of the key uh, point, which is that investment security considerations are uh, now one among e equals in terms of due diligence considerations um, at the outset of a transaction and as parties are thinking about transactions. Um, and so the China dimension plays large and looms large in, in that conversation. I think that if there's a Chinese investor, it's incumbent upon the parties to um, understand, uh, again, who the investor is, what the linkages are to uh, the Chinese government. If there are Chinese Communist Party linkages as well, or PLA linkages, I think that's an important piece of it. So there's a, a due diligence component um, with respect to your investor. There's a due diligence component with respect to the type of technology or the type of business that you have and whether or not it creates 
uh, national security risks. It, when you think about national security risks from a more broad perspective, as opposed to a more narrow and tailored one. Um, and so it's important to be able to understand that, uh, conduct a, an effective export control review. Chinese investment here in the United States has decreased significantly over the last three, two or three years for a number of different reasons. I think CFIUS is only one piece of it. Um, but where there are Chinese transactions um, and there aren't significant uh, national security issues, those transactions are giving through. Um, it requires a conversation with CFIUS. Where there are national security concerns with respect to export control technology or personal data, it, it appears that there's less opportunity to be able to get uh, mitigation agreements negotiated with CFIUS because in part uh, tr of trust concerns but and reliability concerns, but a whole range of other issues as well. So on the CFIUS context, I think that uh, one piece of it is that there is a due diligence perspective. A second piece is that uh, transactions are getting cleared, but uh, with greater challenges, especially where there are national security concerns as well. But I think it all plays out against the backdrop of the broader U.S.-China relationship, as you alluded to, Juan, um, and that I think that as you know, the trade relationship uh, and the trade uh, war between the U.S. and China plays out, um, and as companies and as governments better understand some of the supply chain uh, vulnerabilities and issues that uh, that how CFIUS approaches uh, some of these issues with respect to uh, supply chains is also going to evolve. I think that last the last point you uh, raised, with, which is the bigger uh, geopolitical uh, relationship between the United States and China, is a troubling one. Uh, more generally, for the trade and investment relationship between the U.S. and China, but between the U.S. and the rest of the world as well, um, especially as countries start putting up bigger walls with respect to investment and broaden the scope of what national security uh, is. I, I think uh, it will be an interesting uh, sort of thing to watch over the next two to three months and over the next year as both the financial crisis plays out as well as how countries start implementing various uh, aspects of their foreign investment review regimes. That's a great summary, Ham, and a great way to close out the podcast. I, I think from your and Dave's input, we had a really illuminating session here. I hope it was enjoyable and interesting for the audience. What's clear is that these issues of investment security risk and integrity uh, are going to uh, continue to be with us. They're going to be more complicated. They're going to impact the marketplace. Uh, they're going to impact policy and regulation, not just in the United States, but abroad. And him, as you just you know, closed out, this plays right into the broad geoeconomic and geopolitical debates of our time, especially with tension growing between the U.S. and China. So this is an arena to watch the CFIUS and FIRMA areas, which were once confined to the great experts of the world like him, Das, uh, and Dave Hawley, uh, are now part of more common lexicon and policy discussion. Uh, so hope I hope that was um, helpful to the listeners. We will continue to track this. We will continue to work with clients on these issues. And we will come back to you with another podcast to keep you updated on what's happening in this field. Uh, I'm Juan Zarati. For all of us at K2Fin, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on FinCast. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.